Hi, I'm Natalie from Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, this is Edmund from Montana. Hi, I'm Dan from Atlanta, Michigan. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org. And click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're live on tape this week at the Sundance Film Festival, Park City, Utah. My guests are Sean Welch and Jeffrey Blitz, who just premiered their new documentary here at the Fest. When they made their first film together, the Spelling Bee doc Spellbound, Blitz was behind the camera and Welch was holding the boom mic. I don't think even in their wildest dreams they imagined that their movie, which they financed with credit card debt, would end up nominated for an Oscar. Blitz was a guest on the show when his first fictional feature, Rocket Science, was released a couple of years ago. He's kept busy between then and now, directing episodes of The Office and working on the duo's new film, Lucky. It follows lottery winners and tracks the ways that their windfalls have affected their lives. The film's subjects are multivarious, among them an immigrant couple who used the winnings to fund family members' businesses back in Vietnam, and this guy who was living depressed and in squalor before he hit it big. Uh, I was down to my, about my last three bucks. I said, the hell with it, I'm playing the lottery. There was a night that I won that five and a half million on. One day, three weeks ago, this unemployed 44-year-old walked into this convenience store in suburban Chicago. He had holes in his shoes and 12-year-old glasses held together with a paper clip. My father always told me, things are tough now, but they got to get better. Be a good captain of the ship, and they're going to get better. Even though he didn't have enough money for food, he played the lottery and hit the jackpot. An amazing rags-to-riches story. It was like a strange feeling, like if you left this earth and you went to heaven, that's what it felt like. You know, some people have one life. To me, I have like two lives. It's like a new beginning. Sometimes you got to leave the bad life and start a new life. Jeffrey Blitz, Sean Welch, uh, welcome back to The Sound of Young America. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to have you here. Uh, Sean, uh, Jeffrey was here with his film, which actually also premiered at Sundance, Rocket Science, um, a couple of years ago. Sean was on when uh, Sean and Jeffrey made their first film, the smash hit documentary Spellbound, uh, which was what, six or seven years ago now, quite some time ago. Yeah, uh, we premiered at South by Southwest in uh, early 2002. So that's that's eight eight years ago yeah, now, probably yeah. seven eight years ago. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. It's it's always a pleasure to have you. I really enjoyed the new film. Thanks. Um, we talked a little bit, Jeffrey, when you were last on the show about, about your process for make what your process was for making Spellbound, which was essentially, if I can, um, if I can paraphrase from uh, long ago memory, involved. Um, you holding a camera, uh, Sean holding a boom, um, and uh, both of you holding a lot of credit card accounts. Yes. Um, this new documentary, how was it different to make uh, to make a film after you'd already had a very successful documentary and and um, uh, a, certainly a highly critically successful um, uh, feature film in, in your back pocket? Uh, I'd say, I mean, only the last of those three things changed. I still um, shoot, for better or worse, and Sean still uh, Sean still does the sound. Um, 
but uh, it's no longer on our credit cards, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. We were able to find uh, a company that was willing to back us, Big Beach. And five and a half years ago, we met with them, gave them the pitch to do a lot a project on lottery winners. They instantly got it. And so it's been a, a wonderful and supportive partnership. I should say that uh, they were drunk at that first meeting. <laughs> so it was a breakfast meeting, but they were drunk. And that's probably why we're here right now. Yeah, like we are now. Well, you've got a good sense of how Hollywood works. <laughs> um, when you're making Spellbound, you're making a movie about kids and uh, I would expect that you would anticipate difficulty um, bringing, you know, convincing parents to let you talk to their kids. Um, and when you're just two guys, you know, one with a camera, one with a, a boom pole and, uh, you know, a pocket full of credit cards. Um, how is it different approaching subjects f- for this lottery documentary where, where you're guys who have been nominated for an Oscar uh, for uh, 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 Spellbound. And, you know, you have a track record as, you know, you're not exactly going to, you know, 60 minutes anybody. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is we thought that on the basis of that, that uh, for however hard it was on Spellbound, that uh, any any future doc would not be that hard. And we were exactly wrong about this. Somehow it was much harder for us to get lottery winners to say yes um, than it was to get parents to let us into the bedroom of their children. And even on, on this project with lottery winners, we had the uh, the benefit of including a DVD of Spellbound, or what we thought would be a benefit, including a, a DVD of Spellbound in our opening letter to them. These people didn't care. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they, didn't know, they didn't know what Spellbound I mean, was. Yeah, right. And the, right, but the thing is, I don't think that was, right, I don't think that was based on their sense of Spellbound. It's just that lottery winners immediately after they win, their mission in life is to try to hide. We just become one of many people who are approaching them for something. Most other people are approaching them for money. But even so, we want time and exposure. And I think they fear, most of them, the greater exposure is just going to lead to more crazy people asking them for crazy things. And none of them has anything as awesome to say as, do I sound like a musical robot? (laughs) Yes, right. Yeah, you're referring to Harry from Spellbound. If you guys were, if you guys pitched me on a documentary about me, I would just be terrified that I would never say anything that great in my entire life, and thus would would suffer in comparison. I saw. I was in. Um, I was out of the country. Uh, I think I was in Vancouver, and I saw a T-shirt that says, "Does this sound like a musical robot?" <laughs> on a T-shirt. That was pretty great. <laughs> that was a magical moment in yeah, cinema. No, yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it was probably better than the Oscar nomination to see that on a T-shirt <laughs> in Vancouver. That was, that was great. So what do you think it was? You, you, uh, the film follows a, a number of different lottery winners. What do you think it was that um, was different about – either different about these particular people or, um, or, or something that you did that got you – entree into their lives. God, I think like with a lot to do with the lottery, it was a numbers game actually. And we just ended up having to approach so many people over such a long period of time um, that the prep work on it, the research and the prep that we thought would be a few months ended up being years. And that ultimately, because we just went for you know such a big group that we had enough breakthroughs of people who were interested and who seemed like uh, their stories would be compelling. But, man, it took a long time. Did you think about what this movie was going to be? 
before you started talking to people? Were there themes in this, you know, years of research that you ended up doing because it was so tough to put together that, that started to come up for you? Well, for me, the funny thing is before we started shooting, I was, I thought that, um, you know, Spellbound ended up being sort of uh, in part about a spelling bee, but more about this American dream that I, before we started on Lucky, I thought that uh, it was going to be a documentary about God in America, actually, and that and that for anyone who aspired to win or had won, that it would open up these great questions about fate and what their role was. Um, but I was the only person who thought that, actually, <laughs> as it turns out. So, so, uh, so we discovered sort of quickly in that the that whatever the whatever the underlying ideas of the film would be, that we would just have to listen and let the subjects sort of um, speak them, which is actually, I think, the way that the best docs get made. So it ended up being much more about the idea of uh, how people go from, how people think they're going to go from A to Z, when sometimes really what the transformation of the lottery is about is from to go from like a, a, a lowercase A to a, to a big, giant, bold-faced <laughs> A in caps. Yeah, and I, I was going to add that we, we do like that it's a, uh, a companion piece to Spellbound. I mean, Spellbound was about kids who, um, in their pursuit of the American dream, apply themselves and work hard, Protestant work ethic, um, dedication. And here with the lottery winners, these people's lives are transformed in an instant um, by no uh, other work on their, on their behalf other than going to the local store to buy this lottery ticket. It's interesting in that it's it's like it's almost a mirror image. I mean, particularly considering that with the spelling bee, I mean, the spelling bee is a competition that is I mean, I don't want to say it's entirely meaningless, but the meaning is completely invested from the outside. I mean, spelling in 2010 is a almost useless skill. Um, you know, you have to, all you need is a rough approximation. I can't, you know, I know how to spell things and I can't write them on my phone. Um, so I got big thumbs. Uh, so that's, that's like a direct contradiction is these people working so hard for the completely abstract idea of hard work and self-improvement with this objective being spelling really good. Um, where, whereas this, this other thing is this completely no work at all and all of the tangible rewards. Yeah. It was, uh, really stark for us to see actually how, um, in Spellbound, what the final point of it was not important, but it was, but it was how they felt, um, about it, uh, and how it gave them, uh, how it gave them a, a, a sense of a, a sense of sort of what their uh, role in the world might be, and in Lucky, it's very interesting to see how people who don't uh, people who are engaged in a process where there's no journey, there's just like the pot of gold at the end. They they are cut adrift from their own identity in a way, and that you know uh, it ends up being, I think, in some sense, a movie about how the tangible stuff ends up being not as important as the journey. Um, and that, you know, people, their sense of themselves comes from their work and their family and their friends and their neighborhood. And 
all these things that as soon as you uh, win um, is in one day is, I don't know if it's right to say that like your family is stripped from you in one day, but certainly work and neighborhood and friends, you know, like, um, like how your family views you and how you view them and all that. It's all different. I mean, even family, one of the, one of the, uh, winners that you profile who had one of the toughest times of any of the folks that you're, that you profile in the film had a, a sibling literally take out a contract on his life and try to have him killed for his money. Yeah. In fact, it wasn't just one sibling. It was a couple brothers and a sister. It seemed they like. teamed up? Well, it doesn't uh, – they seem like – yeah, at some point they may have teamed up, but they, they, but they operated as independent assassins as well. Yeah, over multiple times and, and multiple ways too. One of the winners that you uh, profile in the film is a mathematician. And um, uh, he talks about why he played the lottery as a mathematician who knows that the odds are against him. And he says that what he always said he was buying was um, the fantasy. He talks about how much he wants a Lamborghini. Yeah. And he finds that when he actually gets his money and, and wins, it, it, what he wants from that money com- changes completely. Yeah, that it, as soon as it becomes a real thing that – he is actually a case of someone who may have been better off if his whole life it was just about what the fantasy of winning was. And when he actually won and it was a real thing to deal with, the fantasies no longer applied. Uh, and so he had to reimagine what his uh, place in the world was and what his idea for the money would be. So he ended up with a Volvo instead of a Lamborghini but I think he traded up to Alexis at some point. So um, <laughs> uh, that's a something. But um, And he ended up feeling like the important thing to do was to try to do good in the world. Uh, and so he wanted his life to stay the same as much as it could. But the world doesn't really let that happen for lottery winners for the most part. It, it really doesn't let it happen for him. I mean, it, it he, you know, it's, it's hard to say because we weren't there, but he pretty much directly attributes the breakup of his marriage to uh, having won the lottery. Yeah, uh, yeah, it seems like that. He seems, he's quite certain that had that not happened, that for better or worse, that uh, that his wife would not have left him. Um, but that as soon as they won and she was entitled to half of it, she didn't, uh, I guess, his side of the story there. Yeah, yeah so, yeah, I, I think that in the fantasy vision of the lottery, you don't imagine the world around you going through any significant change you just feel like you get to stay in your life but you get to drive a nicer car or you know you get you can afford you know health care or whatever uh and that's true up to a point but as soon as the jackpot gets big then everything changes whether you want it to or not more with jeffrey blitz and sean welch after a break on the sound of young america from maximumfund.org and pri public radio international Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. On Thursday, February 25th, The Sound of Young America presents Laugh Night in downtown Los Angeles. It's a comedy taping for The Sound of Young America, and it's also a benefit for the kids' art programs at ArtShare. For 8 bucks, you can check out six amazing comedians, Greg Barrett, 
Don Glover, Karen Kilgariff, James Adomian, Holly Mills, and Nick Adams, all handpicked by The Sound of Young America. And 100% of the dollars you pay at the door go to pay for free arts classes for kids and teenagers in downtown L.A. For more information or to make your reservations, go to MaximumFun.org slash Laugh Night. That's MaximumFun.org slash Laugh Night. And I hope we'll see you on Thursday, February 25th. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Jeffrey Blitz, the director, and Sean Welch, the producer and boom microphone operator of uh, the new documentary, Lucky, which just premiered here at the Sundance Film Festival, where we're recording this show. They were also uh, nominated for an Oscar for their first documentary, Spellbound, and Jeffrey made the uh, critically acclaimed uh, feature film, uh, fictional feature film, Rocket Science. Um, Jeffrey, you talked a little bit about um, about the way that people relate to fate when they win the lottery. And you said, as you said, it wasn't an interesting topic to the people who had won the lottery. But it, it, it seemed to have come up the most with a subject that you interviewed who was a regular lottery player spending, her sister says, 50 to $70 a day, if I remember correctly, on lottery tickets. Um, and it has never won more than I think she says one time she won five thousand dollars. Yeah, that's right. Um, she is a person of very deeply held faith, and she talks in the film about she struggles, you know, vocally with the idea of whether God wants her to play the lottery, and if she won, whether that would be God telling her that she was doing a good thing, and. It's amazing. It's 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 amazing the way that the lottery sort of forces people to think about their own, you know, to think about their moral choices and and also think about think about how much influence they or some outside power has over something that is essentially random. Well, the thing is, I think that's actually only half true, uh, which is that at sporting events or with the lottery or when you gamble. A lot of people, when they win, they attribute it to God, but when they don't, there's no thought of God to it. It's not uh, – and so I think with Verna in the film, um, as she herself says, that that uh, that when she wins, she's on this sort of high, and she feels like she has a guardian angel of some sort. But when she doesn't win, it doesn't stay with her as an experience. She doesn't think about it, which I think uh, tells you a lot about – sort of what the psychology of that stuff is and how um, – but also just how interesting it is that people define God according to what suits them. And, of course, like this, you know, I, I, don't, I don't scold people for doing that, but I do think it's interesting. And, you know, and it does sort of go to show in a way that when something good happens to you and it feels like it's out of the blue, you want that to – or a lot of people will want that to – suggest that that means something about the way that the world works. Um, but when something bad happens, that thought doesn't occur. It's, it's, it's kind of like a natural human thing to want to impose order onto disorder and give reason to things that don't have reason. Yeah, sure. And, and so for me, I, I just thought that when your life has changed in such a gigantic way, you would be forced to try to put some sort of meaning onto it uh, or you would just be cut adrift and you would be lost. 
And the interesting thing that we found is that instead of having people put meaning on it, most of them go through a, at least a stretch where they are lost, that it's such a gigantic change and they just have no um, framework for for being able to accept that their lives have been completely upended and it's and it's happened in a way that is totally random. I think that's very hard for anyone to grapple with. The mathematician uh, that is profiled in the film talks about that like specifically. He just says, you know, I went through years where I had no idea who I was. It's terrifying. It must be. It must be difficult to even to talk to somebody about that. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I think for us that that. Uh, one of the points where the film feels like it starts to get past the the very simple way that people think about the lottery, either in the fantasy of it or the flip side to it, that you know that um, you know I, I think people have the notion that to win is either completely evil or completely great. And for me, one of the places where the movie starts to break through that and gets more interesting is when people start to address the loss of identity that happens with it, which to me was completely unexpected, but is um, for the most part shared by, by uh, all of our lottery winners, I think. You, you, have, uh, you have a couple uh, in the film who win uh, an absolutely monstrous uh, uh, lottery award or whatever they're called. It's, it's a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine uh, digit win like a right. hundred hundred and ten hundred and twenty five million dollars yeah, something like that yeah. um and uh you speak to some of their uh some of their friends and um they they basically openly say to you when we look at them it's impossible not to see the money not to feel you know a million feelings but certainly jealous um, envious, you know, questions about who deserves it. That must have been, that must have been unbelievable to, to experience in perfect in person to be there and have someone say that to you with cameras in the whole nine yards. Yeah, I, it's a great moment when you're working on a documentary and someone speaks the truth. Uh, you know, it's what you aspire to, but and. You know, sometimes, oftentimes in docs, when people don't speak the truth, they don't speak it in ways that shed some light on who they are, so it's interesting. But when someone just cuts through it and shares exactly what they're feeling, uh, it can be amazing. I was, Sean and I were just talking about, there's a line that did not make it into the film because ultimately the way it came across on tape was not as great as it was live. But live, this friend uh, in her kitchen, she talks about how she tries to imagine what life for their friends who have won uh, is like now. And she says something, God, that was so beautiful and, and really funny. Uh, it ended up being too complicated in its structure to use. But where she says she thinks they play golf all day and that they live like Michael Jackson, <laughs> which I just thought it was so odd. Like the whole thing was so odd. And I really I, – I, I wanted to use the line, but it was – it was so confusing I mean, what's, taken out of context. One of the things that's most odd about that is just the idea that, I mean, I'm a huge Michael Jackson fan, frankly, but uh, the idea that, a spot, that one would like to live 
like Michael Jackson. Well, for me, it's the idea that Michael Jackson played golf at all. <laughs> Where did that come from? Um, there's a, a, that couple has a, a couple of adolescent kids. Um, uh, I don't know exactly how old they one's, one's talking about going to college, so I'm guessing he's 17. Maybe the, the girl is a little younger than him, 15, yeah, 16. That's right. Um, and it seems like it, it seems like that loss of identity is particularly traumatic when it comes at the point in your life where you're establishing your identity. And the the son talks about the son talks about how he just wants to keep his job. He works at a chicken place. He just says, "I don't know. I just want to keep my same job, and I want to go to a college where I can keep my same job at the chicken place." He says very so sincerely. What, what was it like to talk to to people who were in that kind of like that formative moment when they had this huge dislocation? Yeah. Well, the thing is, his mom says about herself actually that her whole life she just wanted to fit in. That's all she wanted, and that as soon as they won, it changed all of that, and she didn't fit anywhere anymore. That. Incredibly rich people are very dubious of lottery winners and, you know, and, and people who are not incredibly rich don't feel like, you know, those winners exist in their world anymore. But I think what she was describing actually is intensely true at that adolescent age where we're really, for most people, your primary goal is to fit in. And all of a sudden, in order for them to continue to fit in in high school, they have to act like this thing does not apply to them. It only applies to their parents. But of course, in some ways, that can't possibly be true. Um, so, you know, whether their friends play along with that or not, or, man, I I think it, it was probably incredibly difficult for them. I do think that they were both, that because the family was as grounded as it was, that um, that that they were really stable kids and that they probably handled it, I imagine, they handled it well. There are a lot of class dislocations in the film, as you would expect from a movie about people winning the lottery. Not a lot of people who already have $100 million win the lottery, I'm sure. Um, and uh, probably the most stark is a guy who, um, who, who basically goes from zero to lottery winner. Um, uh, you show a, a like a, a clip from uh, a report on Inside Edition or a hard copy or something like that, where um, where they show him before he won this uh, before he won this jackpot, and he talks a little bit about what he was like before he won this jackpot, and he was living in a in a home that was um, you know had layers of feces on the window sills from his cats, and he had lost his parents, which were the most important people in his lives, and. Um, uh, according to his uh, friend slash self-described manager, um, he was, you know, like mildly enfeebled after he l- lost his parents. Um, and uh, and he went from that to being mega, mega rich. Um, I, I should also mention depressed to the point of considering suicide um, and spent one of his last three dollars on the lottery ticket. Um, what was it like, uh, to see someone whose identity had changed so dramatically when that person's identity was so desperate and sad and 
end of the rope to begin with. Well, I think the interesting thing is that the place where the lottery seems to work for people is when they don't have the ability to satisfy their basic means. And then you can't help but think that whatever the transformation is has got to be good, you know? Uh, So he went from a guy who wanted to end his life to a guy who, for however uh, odd he is and how he lives now, is glad to be alive. And it's it became clear as we were filming that really it seemed like people who were able to satisfy what their basic needs were um, did fine, uh, and that it's people who ended up with so much more that it, you know, that the questions that they had to deal with were not questions of basic needs anymore, but whether we want you know ten cars or twelve or whatever. That that was the place where things started to get shady. They, there's a family in the film um, who are. Uh, Vietnamese immigrants, uh, uh, husband and wife were Vietnamese immigrants and, um, you know, well into middle age. Um, and, and they won, uh, they won a lottery as part of a, a, a group play at the, at the, at a factory where the husband worked. Um, that immigrant story is such a classic American dream story. It must be strange to see it through the lens of someone who, you know, has worked so incredibly hard and gotten not that much out of it and then has a windfall, a monstrous windfall through, you know, happenstance almost. I think for us, it was a great example of how whatever your inherent personality is or or whoever you are deep down inside that the lottery seems to just allow that to be writ large then and here was a family that was a really solid family from the start and had been through so much hardship and heartache uh and you can imagine that had they not won the lottery life would have been fine for them i mean it would have been hard because they were both uh, both husband and wife worked the graveyard shift in a meat packing plant in Nebraska. So life was hard. But in terms of basic level of, of happiness, the two of them seemed to be very settled in terms of who they were and pleased with that. And that then when they won, that just got, you know, that just was made extreme in a way, which was for our movie, I think, um, an important thing to see that it's not that when you win, everything goes wrong necessarily, but you know, sort of when you win, whoever you are deep down ends up just being expressed in some incredibly loud way to the world. Spending five years making this movie must have made you wonder about who you were deep down. Jeff is a uh, lottery winner. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, that's that's only largely untrue. Uh, um, I've only played the lottery twice. I played uh, – Sean had the idea that before we started to shoot, I should have the experience of playing. So I went and did a quick pick thing, and I won $55 on it, which I thought – I assumed that this was like a very common thing, and that's why people would play. And Sean said that uh, – Sean said no, that in fact the next time I played, I would lose. So I didn't play again, and then at the end of the film – Sean said that in advance of having to do press that I should have the experience to play again so I could lose and I could say I had won and lost. Um, so I won $7 the second time, and I'm going to stop now. 
So if you um, if you happen to have a miraculous windfall, let's say a lottery ticket happened to be blowing down the street, um, or say this lottery ticket that you guys handed me before we started the interview on the back of the flyer for your movie, um, uh, let's say I gave that to you, and it, it, what what personality traits w- would you be scared of or or worried about? Um, given that $50 million. Well, there are some states that allow the uh, prize winners to claim their jackpots anonymously. And um, I, would, uh, I would scurry as quickly as possible to that state. Um, I would I'd go underground and uh, wouldn't let you or Ben <laughs> chase me around with the, uh, with the camera. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I as, as most people do, I think, these days uh, that are lottery winners, they become immediately protective and they surround themselves with um, financial advisors, attorneys, um, sometimes publicists. Um, I'm not sure I, I would surround myself with, uh, with all of those, but uh, certainly a financial advisor and uh, I'd keep, a, keep it to myself, keep a very low profile. How, how do you think it would affect your relationships? Would, would you be scared? Uh, well, if... If I could remain anonymous, um, I wouldn't be as scared. Um, I think it would give uh, you know Jeffrey and me an opportunity to go out and, and, and do some more films without having to go out and, and, and pitch to um, to other financiers. But um, the immediate relationships, I, I've thought about it, and I thought that uh, I would uh, gather my friends and family in a room, depending on the size of the jackpot, and uh, we would uh, discuss the needs of the people as a group, and then I think I would meet with them on individual levels and then decide how the money might be uh, distributed. Um, yeah, I should just say all of that is a lie, by the way. <laughs> that, uh, Sean has told me that uh, if he wins the lottery, he has a script that um, his script that he wrote, uh, he's going to star in it also. <laughs> I think it's a remake of Gone with the Wind, he said. Uh, he's going to be playing um, uh, Scarlet and Rhett, I think he said is his lifelong <laughs> dream. So it's very expensive, but if he wins, that's that's his ambition. You're going to spend the money on doing it in color this time. Yes. Are well, you available to direct, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the price, right? So, yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking this time to be on the Sandy Young America. It was it was great to have you as always. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. Uh, Jeffrey Blitz is the director, and Sean Welch, uh, the producer of the new film. Lucky, which just premiered here at the Sundance Film Festival. Um, it'll soon be headed to, to a theater near you. You can keep tabs on it at luckyatsundance.com or facebook.com slash lucky. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our Sundance episodes uh, produced and directed as well as edited by Nick White. Our music provided by Dan Wally. Benjamin R. Harrison directed the videos of our interviews at Sundance, which you can find online at MaximumFun.org. Our thanks to Eric Bright PR for providing us with a space to record. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. And you can always visit us on the web at MaximumFun.org, where we've got The Sound of Young America and all of our other great shows absolutely for free, uh, downloadable, streamable, or via podcast. We'll see you next time, right here on The Sound of Young America. <laughs>